Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Dr. Norman Horn, and I am joined today by my good friend, Vijay Boyapati, who is here to talk about his new book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Now, Vijay has been a friend of mine for a long time, uh, but he's a newcomer to our show, and we are just so happy to have him here. So, Vijay, welcome to the LC Podcast. Thank you, Norman. It's really awesome to talk to you. And like you said, we've been friends for a really long time. So I've been looking forward to this, and I know you're a Bitcoiner, (laughs) so there's a lot for us to talk about. Indeed. And we've been, man, we've been on similar forums for long enough that we probably even remember some of the early days of even discovering Bitcoin, which was always a bit of an enigma to us at first, but now we're writing books about it and doing podcasts about it and excited to see its value continuing to increase. We saw yet another all-time high this week. And wow, what an exciting, what an exciting time to be alive. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's like one of these really important moments in history, in in the history of technology and, and in the case of Bitcoin, in the history of money and economics. And the thing that, you know, gets me most excited, I know, uh, we both really highly value individual liberty and it's just, it's a new technology and a new tool for advancing human liberty. And that's really why I'm so excited about Bitcoin. Uh, exactly. And, you know, we, like you said, we've both been enamored with ideas about liberty for some time. It's what brought us together in the first place as friends. And, but you've got a pretty awesome history in, uh, in doing liberty stuff as well. What can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just your own pathway and how you kind of got to this point of getting interested in Bitcoin in the first place? Yeah, so I'll give you my background. I'll try and keep it pretty brief. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm not from the US. I'm from Australia originally, although I'm a US citizen now. I came to the US to do a PhD in computer science. Ultimately, I didn't end up even starting the PhD. I got a job at a startup, (laughs) uh, a startup. It's called Google. Uh, it's not a startup anymore. It's a much, much, <laughs> Wait, what? much bigger company. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was that was a great experience. That was the beginning of my career. And I, and I got to sort of have a front row seat on the history of technology. So that was a really exciting time. And I spent several years at Google. We were talking about individual liberty. That's where I first got exposed to the ideas of individual liberty. I came to the US really without any political ideology, I suppose if I had any belief system, it was probably slightly towards the beliefs that people get indoctrinated with at university. So I was slightly left-wing, but I didn't really have any conviction in any of that. But when I was at Google, I met a number of libertarians who exposed me to some of the ideas of people like Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman, and then eventually Murray Rothbard and, and Ludwig von Mises. And I remember I had a friend who gave me a VHS tape, it's unbelievable to think about it now, a VHS <laughs> tape of Ayn Rand being interviewed by Phil Donahue in the 1970s. And, you know, I never really cared much for politics or listening to politicians or, you know, the topic in general, I didn't even think about it. But when I listened to Ayn Rand, I really felt like being hit by a bolt of lightning. I felt like 
she was arguing these positions from reason and she was doing it in front. She was this very small Russian woman sitting in front of a very large hostile audience, uh, you know, many of whom believed in socialism and government intervention and arguing passionately from conviction in the importance of human liberty. And it was just an incredible moment for me. And, and since then, I've just, you know, gone down the rabbit hole uh, with these ideas. So anyway, I, I was at Google until 2007. And then I had another one of the, those experiences. I was watching the uh, 2008, the, the nomination for the candidate for the Republican Party, the debates in, I think it was South Carolina. And there was a candidate who was very different to all the other Republican candidates. And he got up on stage and he was explaining ideas that no one else was talking about, things like the importance of sound money and that the US should not be interfering in the affairs of other countries and the importance of individual liberty. And he, he what, explained what a novel that, concept. Yeah, <laughs> and cra- it's crazy, isn't it? And he, yeah. he explained this idea that the reason that these other countries and people in these other countries are so antagonistic towards the US is that we're over in their countries with a military presence. And if they were doing that to us, we'd be really upset. And and Rudy Giuliani, and, and of course I'm talking about Ron Paul here, Rudy Giuliani got himself into a huff and like castigated uh, Dr. Paul and uh, told him off and said, I can't believe you just said that. But Ron stood his ground and explained the point in more detail and had the courage of his conviction, despite the fact there was this audience who was booing him. And it was that same feeling that I had when I watched Ayn Rand. And I thought, I got to do something to help this guy. This is incredible. So he came to Google actually to give a talk, uh, you know, when all the candidates were doing the circuit around the country, a lot of them came to Google because it was this, you know, cool upcoming company and they wanted to impress the the folks at Google and raise money. And Ron Paul came and I, I got up to the microphone and I said, if I could write you a blank check, I would write you a blank check. And I ultimately quit my job at Google, my pretty lucrative job to go campaign for Ron Paul in New Hampshire. And I ended up um, raising millions of dollars and bringing hundreds of volunteers from around the country to canvas for Ron uh, in New Hampshire. Ultimately, it didn't work out. And one thing I learned was the you know, fact is much more powerful than grassroots activism, which determined the fate of political campaigns. And I learned that the media has incredible power and, and Fox News decided in 2007 to exclude Ron from the Republican debates despite his huge popularity, despite having raised more money than anyone else. And that totally killed his chance to win the primary in New Hampshire. So that made me really kind of sad and cynical about the political process. And for a number of years, I basically just gave up on it and thought, you know, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't see a way that we can advance these ideas uh, of individual liberty, given there are these very powerful entrenched interests that are against us. So I thought I'll just go back to the startup world and building software because that's what I know and that's what I'm good at. And then in 2011, I came across Bitcoin and it was this like amazing new technology. I had no idea what it was, but I had a friend uh, who I had a bet with and the bet was about um, (laughs) Federal Reserve policy. We're both really interested in economics and we had a bet about whether the Federal Reserve would increase interest rates or not. And, And the bet was for a single silver coin 
a single silver eagle, which at the time was worth about $50. And I won the bet and my friend said, look, don't take the silver coin, take these other things, they're called Bitcoins. And I have some Bitcoins and I'll, I'll send them to you. And I said, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but fine. Uh, my friend's probably the best investor I know. And, and so I said, okay, I'll take whatever you're going to give me. I don't know what it is, but you say it's this great new thing. I'll, I'll take it. And so I had to, he showed me I needed, how I needed to download the Bitcoin software and then I ne- needed to download the Bitcoin blockchain. And I had this tiny little laptop and I had no idea what was going on. It was taking hours and hours and the fan on my laptop was spinning and it was getting really hot. And I'm like, what are you doing? What, <laughs> what is this? And then eventually it finished downloading the blockchain and, and he sent me five Bitcoins and he showed me on a very primitive block explorer. He said, look, I sent you five Bitcoins. And I had no idea what that was, what it meant. And it was just a string of numbers and letters. But that was really the beginning for me back in 2011 when I started going down the rabbit hole and, and trying to understand what Bitcoin was and what its significance was. And it's just been something that I've been passionate about ever since. Because in Bitcoin, I think I've found something that will help advance these values that we have through technology. And I have a belief now that it's a much more powerful way to change the world through technology rather than through political activism, because we can reshape the landscape completely and create tools that make certain things inevitable. So it's been something I've been very interested in and very passionate about for about a decade. Yeah, and we've talked about this in various ways for years. And, and one thing I think it's really interesting, you know, we talk about technology being this great means of promoting individual liberty in the long run. But there's also some people out there you look at the progress of technology and they see, well, this could also just be, you know, yet another means of the state taking control and all that. And to an extent, they're not wrong, but there's something special about Bitcoin, I think, that really drives the, the point about technological innovation being a driver of individual liberty forward. And I think you, you sort of agree with that, too. And I'm wondering if we could unpack that a little together at first here. Yeah, I think that's a a really great point. I think it's important to have humility about this and not necessarily say that technology is always good. I think technology can often be a double-edged sword. You think about something like nuclear power, for instance, it could potentially be this fantastic, clean, cheap source of power for humanity. But on the other hand, it allows us to build bombs that could destroy the whole world. Or the internet, it allows people to communicate with each other without interference, but it also makes possible this very intrusive surveillance state. So technology can be both good and bad, and it's often the case that something that's very good has the potential to be very bad. Bitcoin is, in my opinion, a rare exception of something that's an unalloyed good. I don't see something you know, obviously very negative about Bitcoin. Right. What it allows is for people to keep their savings without the permission of governments and to be able to transmit their savings across the world without having to ask permission. That's really something that's never been possible before. I mean, gold was a good way of keeping savings through time. You, you know, put some of your hard-earned 
work and savings into gold and keep your savings that way. And over time, it would keep its purchasing power. But gold has this huge disadvantage that it's very difficult to transmit across distance. So, you know, if I'm in the US and I want to send value to my parents and I have gold, I can't do that easily. You know, I mean, if I mail the gold coins, there's a lot of risk. It's costly. It could get lost. It could get stolen. And the way that's usually handled is instead of sending the gold, people would send the title to the gold, not the actual gold. But that has huge disadvantages because what it means is that the gold is then held by someone else and you have to trust that someone else. And this is one of the, I think, the major problems that led to gold being demonetized and essentially confiscated by the state in the early 30s. So Bitcoin, I think, solves some of these fundamental problems that gold had and improves on it and, and allows for something that ha has never been possible in the history of the world. And I think that's a very powerful tool for human liberty. Yeah, this is a really crucial point. But I think this also kind of leads us into a real important question for a lot of the newcomers to some of these ideas around cryptocurrencies and, the, and especially Bitcoin to begin with. And that's kind of... What is it about Bitcoin that makes it valuable? And because you know, maybe if they're a libertarian, they're they're used to the idea of something like, well, gold should be money, but it's not because the state says so. And they're used to the idea of exchanging the paper notes and checks and using credit cards and whatnot the way we always have for the last fifty years or whatever, you know, in our modern economy. But again, Bitcoin is something different. Bitcoin is a different leap forward. What is it about Bitcoin that enables us to kind of say, well, this is right. It's right for it to be appreciating in value relative to the dollar and so on. For the newcomer around, how would you kind of explain this to somebody who may not necessarily be like super technologically motivated to understand everything? So I think the thing that's really important to understand is money, to step back and talk about money. So like, what is money? Yeah. Yeah. What is money? Why do we have money? Why do human societies have money? Basically, if we don't have money, we would all be in a, a state of barter. We'd be in this very primitive state and we wouldn't have human civilization. We'd be living in villages and would the extent of human trade would be the people we know and trust in a very sort of small geographical area. Money is a tool that human societies have developed over time that allows for long-distance trade where you can trade with people you don't necessarily trust it allows for economic calculation. It allows for price formation. It allows for the division of labor. And without the division of labor, we don't have civilization. So if money is really this foundational thing that we have in society. It's the foundation for all trade and all savings. So we need it. And historically, gold had been money for most of human history. And that, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't because people sort of dug up you know, this shiny rock from the ground and said, this is money, we need to yeah. use it as money. It was because gold had certain properties that made it suitable as money to solve the roles that money plays in human societies. And, and what are those roles? Well, firstly, money sort of acts as a store of value. It's something that you keep your savings in and you hope will, this, your savings will maintain their purchasing power over time. Another role of money is medium of exchange. And this is the one most people are familiar with. You know, you have your money in your wallet and you go to the grocery store and instead of exchanging fish for apples, you know, which is a barter transaction, you exchange money and there's prices 
in terms of the money. So you go to the grocery store and a loaf of bread is $5. And finally, money is a unit of account. What that means is people account for their profits and losses in terms of money. And that's kind of the final stage of the evolution of money when you have a developed society and it's capitalistic and you have a very deep division of labor. So the thing about money, I would also say, is that it's what's called an intersubjective reality. It's something that has power and value because we all believe it. And there are a lot, there are a lot of things like this where, you know, if we woke up tomorrow and we'd all forgotten about money, then we would instantly lose the power that money had because we wouldn't know how to do anything. We wouldn't know how to buy stuff. We, you know, we'd look at prices and we'd be confused what they were. There are other intersubjective realities, things like, you know, people valuing artwork. Like, why do we value certain artwork? It's something that's developed in human society where we think certain things are good and certain things are bad. Religion is another intersubjective reality where a lot of people believe in something and it gives that thing value because we all share these values together and we believe that they have power. So money is actually probably one of the most powerful intersubjective realities. I think it's a big mistake that a lot of libertarians and Austrians make when they say gold is money because it's physical, it has physicality and it has intrinsic value. Actually, that's completely false. And, you know, if you study Austrian economics, you will understand that value is always subjective. That means each of us will value things subjectively. There's no objective value to something. So a boat, for instance, is not an objectively valuable thing. Maybe a boat is valuable to someone living on the coastline who fishes a lot, but a boat is not valuable to someone who's in the middle of a desert. So this idea of subjective value is really important. With something like gold, what happens is everyone comes to a subjective value of gold because it served these purposes of uh, money that are really important in society, store value, medium of exchange, and unit of count. So when we think about gold, I like to talk about the attributes that make for good money. And these attributes have been known for a very, very long time. But you know, even Aristotle talked about these attributes. They're things like durability. So gold is a better money than wheat because wheat perishes over time. Portability. Gold is better than cows. And cows were actually used as money in some societies. But gold is far better than cows because it's, you know, you can carry a lot of value in a in, in a small space fungibility. So every unit of the economic good should be equivalent to every other unit of the economic good. So gold, again, is better than something like diamonds because diamonds are irregular in shape uh, and quality. So if you were using diamonds as money, every time you tried to do a trade, you'd have to get out your you know, magnifying glass and look at the quality. It would add a huge friction to trade. But probably the most important one, the most important attribute for any monetary good is scarcity. Mm-hmm. And people have always valued money that is scarce. Because imagine that instead of gold being money, sand was money. Then if you want to get rich, you just go down to the beach and you'd, you'd fill your buckets <laughs> with sand and you'd be rich. And the other people who had savings in sand, the value of their sand would then decrease dramatically. So... Humans have always chosen money that's hard to produce. And this is actually an interesting attribute of Bitcoin compared to gold. 
Bitcoin has something that we've never seen before, which is absolute scarcity. We know by design that Bitcoin will never have more than 21 million Bitcoins, which are tokens that can be traded on the network. Whereas gold increases in supply by about 1% to 2% per year. So while gold is hard money, Bitcoin is the hardest money that humanity has ever known. And that's one of the reasons why at the margin, people are recognizing that Bitcoin is superior along the attributes that make for good money. And they're switching their savings over from other economic goods to Bitcoin. And certainly one area where Bitcoin dramatically excels over gold is portability. The ability to transmit Bitcoin over the wire makes it a very, very powerful way of transmitting value compared to gold. And I think, you know, you made a point that's really interesting and something that it's to those of us who've been in Bitcoin a while, maybe it comes easy to us. But for some others, especially if you've been in libertarian circles for a while, maybe a little bit difficult to understand. And, And it's this idea of intrinsic value. And as you mentioned, there's sometimes there's a sense amongst libertarians that, oh, well, the reason why gold should be money is because it has this intrinsic value. It's physical. It has a use value. But there's something different about monetary goods fundamentally that makes it a special good in particular. And that, I mean, it's the fact that it is a monetary good. And so in your book, you talk often about the notion of monetary premiums being associated with monetary goods. Can you unpack all the, these ideas around like what monetary goods and monetary premiums and, and you even call it at some point game theoretic goods. That's a really important concept in your writing. And I'd like you to kind of explain a little bit more about that too, because that's, I think, really important to how we consider, especially how money is valuable over time periods, right? Yeah, most people find it very difficult to wrap their head around money because it it's valued in a very different way to traditional economic goods. Most people kind of understand stocks and bonds and real estate because those asset types produce cash flow. And so if you look at a house and you see that it's selling for a million dollars and you're a bit confused by that, you might say, well, it it generates $50,000 in rent per year. So now it makes sense to me because of that cash flow. Whereas monetary goods don't have any cash flow. Bitcoin doesn't have any cash flow and gold doesn't have any cash flow. It's just a, a sort of a rock that kind of sits there. Those monetary goods get their value based on the utility they provide for serving as money in society. And what happens is in every society, people are trying to determine what will be money. And the economic good that they think will be money gets uh, what's called a, a premium, a monetary premium. So if you took away the monetary premium for gold and valued it just based on its use value alone, what you would find is that, you know, I think the current price of gold is around $1,600 or $1,700 an ounce. The use value price of gold is probably only $200. Very little of the gold that exists on earth is used for use value or utility. It's very little gold is used, you know, in electronics or in, in dental implants or things like that. Most of the gold that's used on earth is used in the monetary sense. Most of it actually sits idle in bank vaults around the world as gold bricks. And that's people using gold for the store of value use case of money. And so that usage, that monetary usage of gold, it's serving the purpose of the function of store of value, gives gold this huge monetary premium. And that premium is the, say, $1,400 on top of the $200. 
that gets you the full price of gold. And the game theory here is that in every society, people are trying to anticipate what will be the next money. And so you, you're in a way looking around and thinking, what are other people going to value in the future? And you want to be the first to figure it out. Because if you figure it out first, you're going to get the greatest benefit when everyone else jumps on board later on. And you also don't want to be last in line. So for instance, if you really thought silver was money or silver was great money in the 19th century and you're holding a lot of your savings in silver, that monetary premium of silver dropped almost to zero because most societies in the world dropped silver as money and and converged on gold as money. So it's also possible for that monetary premium to shrink or disappear entirely. Now, Bitcoin is an interesting thing because it's a new monetary good which has no utility. It, it's entirely monetary premium. It's not like it ha- you can wear it around your neck or you can use it in your teeth for a dental implant or something like that. So where gold might have a monetary premium that accounts for, say, 80 or 90% of its price, Bitcoin's monetary premium accounts for 100% of its price. And people like you and I who own Bitcoin and we're using it to keep our savings in, what we are anticipating is that people in the future are going to recognize that Bitcoin has the attributes that make for good money and they're going to abandon these other forms of money and move over to Bitcoin. And eventually when that happens, Bitcoin's monetary premium will increase dramatically. So that's you know a little bit of the game theory there that we're all trying to anticipate what will be money in the future and we want to have our savings in that money as quickly as possible. So the value that we're placing on it now is in some sense an anticipation of value in the future in the way in which people are going to use it. Exactly right. And the really fascinating thing is that it's a feedback loop. The very fact that you put money into it increases the price and then makes it more likely that it will become money in the future because that increase in price attracts more people who see you know, the movement and uh, attracted to the price signal and say, well, this thing is going up in value. Why is it going up in value? Oh, I understand. It has these attributes that make it better money. I'll put some of my savings in there. And that feedback loop becomes you know, more and more powerful and more intense over time. And that's exactly what we've seen with Bitcoin. More and more people are coming to understand that this is the greatest form of money that humanity has ever seen. So at minimum, I should keep some of my savings in it. And there are other people who've really gone down the rabbit hole and tried to fully understand what Bitcoin is and have developed a very strong conviction to the point where they don't keep any savings in dollars at all. All of their savings when they you know, make a profit from their business or whether they earn a salary, they put it all in Bitcoin. And I think eventually in the future, everyone will be doing that. We will completely abandon government money especially because of the damage that it's done to the world economy and the US economy. And we'll move to a new monetary system where we can feel safe that our savings won't be debased by governments and will not be confiscated by governments when they don't like how we're using our money. What an amazing future that could be. And it's exactly what we've been looking for as libertarians who oppose state action. This is just, it's such a great thing to kind of see this is the kind of technology that really fights back against the state, not just the internet, not just a piece of hardware or something, but an idea that once it permeates and gets through and begins to combat 
a system that exists that is really only exists in order to sustain the power of the state, this is the way out. And that's just, what an, that's super exciting to really consider. And once you understand that, I think that it begins to really grab hold of you in a new way. And it, like, that's just super exciting to me. Yeah. And what's most exciting for me is thinking about kids growing up today. I mean, the kids who were born 10 years ago and are going to grow up in a world where they don't know a world without Bitcoin existing. And so for them, Bitcoin is going to be this almost permanent store of value that's always existed. Yeah. And, and the, the thing with technologies is it, it usually takes about 20 years before people recognize they're going to be around forever. With the internet, you know, when it really started in the early 90s, if you fast forward a decade from them, then in the early 2000s, most people didn't fully understand the internet's importance. They, they said, well, this looks like it's important. We don't know how or why. But if you go forward another decade to say 2010, I think it was eminently clear to everyone that the internet was a transformative thing that was going to change the world and was a permanent institution of the world. And I think the exact same thing is happening with Bitcoin. We're we're 10 years into its history, which is kind of the equivalent of the early 2000s for the internet. And I think a lot of people are starting to appreciate this as important, but they don't really see how important or, or what it will transform. I think if you fast forward a decade from now, Bitcoin will be as significant and as transformative as the internet is today. I fully agree. And I actually kind of wonder, is it going to happen faster than the internet at this point? I mean, do you think the, like we've talked, some folks who listen in may even know of the term that actually one of my friends kind of coined, uh, hyper-Bitcoinization. <laughs> and something you talk about in the book a little bit. And I think that, you know, fundamentally the concept is that, well, okay, it took a long, long time for gold to be established as money. And it does take a long, long time for the world to kind of come to a realization of what is an optimal monetary good. At least it was in the past. But with the internet and the, and the capabilities of Bitcoin and the possibility of so much more rapid expansion of the idea at first and the ability for everybody to participate in this asymmetric bet, a wonderful point that you've made many a time is that this is the one is one maybe the only asymmetric bet in history that everybody on earth with an internet connection and that's really the only condition can participate in and that's what leads to this kind of rapid uh, potentially the much more rapid acceptance of this as a monetary good than anything that has ever existed yeah it's a, it's a really interesting point because the, the process of monetization for gold took thousands of years gold you know went from being you know an idol curiosity of whoever picked it up from the ground and saw a shiny rock to being the global reserve currency, that process took probably five or 10,000 years. Whereas the process of monetization of Bitcoin is so greatly accelerated by the internet and the fact that information travels around at light speed, that Bitcoin went from having you know no value to having a market capitalization over a trillion dollars in a decade which is, a, from an economic perspective, is a stunning event. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing, it's yes. Yeah, it's incredible that something like that could happen so quickly. I will say, however, though, that although information travels at the speed of light, understanding does not. It takes time for people to understand and appreciate something. And I think that's the only factor that really slows down adoption of Bitcoin. Mm, okay. It takes a while for people to wrap their head around it because it's not 
it, it's not an easy topic. It's not obvious. It involves all these different subject areas that people aren't really familiar with, like computer science and economics and game theory and legal theory. Cryptography being one of the Crypt- big ones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cri- cri- cryptography. That's, that's another one. So it, it's not something that, and, and also just money in general. People don't understand yeah. money. If you ask the average oh, yeah. person why a dollar bill has value, most people wouldn't be able to give you a good answer. They'd say, oh, because the government tells us it does. Well, it's, it's much more complex than that. Uh, yep. So I, I think it will take time. And not everyone will fully understand Bitcoin, but they will understand the value that it provides them. Just in the same way that I don't really understand how my car works, like I don't understand the mechanics of my car, but I understand the utility that it provides me. Yep. And people will understand the utility that Bitcoin provides them, especially in an environment where we're facing uh, much higher inflation and where people's savings are, are really melting away much more quickly than they ever have in the probably the last two decades. I think people will see the utility of Bitcoin and say, ah, now I get it. I don't want my savings to disappear. If I'm a pensioner and you know I'm getting a, a fixed pension and the inflation rate is 6%, which is what they tell us, it's probably more like 10 or 15%, then the value of my pension is decreasing by that much every year. So I need to put it in something that'll keep its purchasing power so that I can actually live in the future. So people will understand that utility. It'll just take a little bit of time. And there, there's plenty of other challenges too to kind of continue the the expansion of you know, the Bitcoin idea and whatnot. And one of them, in some sense, is the quote quote competitors out there. And and I say that with uh, you know some scare quotes around it because on some level I I don't really believe there are any true competitors out there. But there are lots of other kind of cryptocurrencies vying for attention some of them skyrocketing in price and having massive swings and whatnot. But why is it that we would say, why is Bitcoin the best? Why is it the one we should be most confident in? And why should we kind of give very little quarter to some of these other so-called tokens or other technologies that try to use blockchain for various other uses? So Bitcoin is a network good. And what I mean by that is its value increases as the number of people who use it increases. And that network effect is very powerful. For any product or service that has a network effect, it's probably the most important attribute of that product or service that gives it value. You think about something like Facebook, the value is in the network, the fact that everyone is on Facebook. I could, you know, fairly, I'm a software engineer by profession, and I could fairly easily create my own version of Facebook, call it VJ book, and, and you could hire yeah. some engineers probably and create Norman book. But that doesn't mean anyone else is going to come along and use it. What we lack, even if we created all the same features as Facebook, is the network effect, the value of being in the dominant network. Bitcoin has by far the dominant network of all of the cryptocurrencies. It's head and shoulders above everything else. And that encompasses uh, you know, the community of people working on Bitcoin, the developers, the brand recognition, the technology built around it, the financial services allowing people to buy and sell Bitcoin and to get their savings into Bitcoin. It's much easier to get a large transfer of value into Bitcoin. Say you're a billionaire and you want to buy 10 or $15 million worth of Bitcoin. You can do that pretty easily and you won't move the price much. If you try and buy one of these tiny altcoins, put that much money into them, you're going to 
cause something which is called slippage, where you'll move the price a lot. Uh, and that's not definitely not something you want to do when you're buying a financial asset. So the network effect of Bitcoin is is by far and away higher than all of these other competing currencies that have been created. The other thing that's really important to understand about Bitcoin is it's the only one that I believe is truly decentralized, which is a unique attribute that means that no one controls Bitcoin. It's it's a network of computers around around the world with no central point of failure. Uh, and this is, again, very different to all of these other cryptocurrencies. Most of them are created by a small team of people who are trying to enrich themselves by you know, owning most of the currency that they're creating and then dumping it on the public. And if, if it ever came to it, a government could go knock on the de- door and say, sh- shut this off or shut this down, and they would be compelled to do so. So, so Bitcoin has that you know, different attribute, which allows us to trust that it can't be controlled, even by nation states. And many nation states have tried to attack Bitcoin and failed. Um, so that's the one thing that gives me confidence that I can trust Bitcoin's monetary policy, which is a fixed monetary policy. I don't trust the monetary policy of these other cryptocurrencies because they have a team controlling them. And even the second biggest currency, Ethereum, recently changed their monetary policy. The team of developers got together and said, we want to change the way the issuance of tokens on our network. So I can never put trust in a cryptocurrency like that because it could change underneath me based on some you know group of people who decide it's a good idea to change it. Bitcoin doesn't have that. There is no group of people who can control Bitcoin. And you mentioned sort of state interference there. And so I'm going to ask this question with sort of my own spin on an answer and then and then let you kind of have at it as well. Because this is, you know, something my my mom once asked me, is like, why do you think, Norman, that someday the US won't just shut it all down and take it all away and make it all disappear? What if they try to ban Bitcoin? And my answer initially was always like, bring it on. Cause then I won't have to report it for capital gains. No, <laughs> but uh but I guess the sort of the the fact remains is like what about the state banning Bitcoin? Uh, Vijay, what do you kind of think about that? So the fact that it's a decentralized network makes it very, very hard to shut down. It's kind of like saying, will the US government shut down the internet? And I guess you could say there's a theoretical possibility that the US government would shut down the internet, but it would be very, very difficult politically because so many people rely on the internet for their livelihoods that it's essentially impossible an example I like to give of this is is the ride-sharing company uh, Uber. And the way Uber would work was they'd go into cities and they would launch their service and it would be really popular and people would sign up to be drivers and other people would use it because, you know, usually taxi services are terrible. Yeah. And then eventually the taxi service would get really upset and petition the local city government and say, you need to shut this down. You need to regulate these guys because they, they're eating our lunch and you have to stop this. So you've got to ban it. But by the time they got around to doing this, the local city governments would be facing this very strong, entrenched lobby group. And that lobby group were the users of Uber and the drivers who really were passionate about Uber and didn't want it to be shut down. And it became too politically difficult to stop Uber. And I think the same thing is happening with Bitcoin, where you have adoption growing very, very fast, creating a political constituency who are passionate about Bitcoin and who want to defend it. And we're now actually seeing this reflected 
by people being elected to Congress and even the Senate who are very pro-Bitcoin. And we actually have a, a U.S. senator, Senator Lummis from Wyoming, who's a passionate Bitcoiner who owns Bitcoin and who said when she went to the Senate, my job is to explain to my fellow senators why Bitcoin is important. So we already have that political capture. And I think that's going to intensify over the next you know, five years when a very large fraction of the US population is going to have some savings in Bitcoin. It, it would kind of be like if the US government said, we're going to, we're going to ban 401ks and we're going to take all of your 401k <laughs> savings. You'd have, yeah. you'd have a revolution. You'd have, you'd have, yeah, you'd have riots in the streets. So, but I don't want to completely dismiss this criticism because I think state attack is still a possibility, even if it's a far-flung possibility. There is a race on between adoption of Bitcoin to the point where it's politically infeasible to shut it down versus those entrenched political interests who are antagonistic towards Bitcoin wanting it to be shut down. And those interests are the banking industry, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, all the people who have the financial power that who are going to be disrupted by Bitcoin's emergence, if they recognize early enough, perhaps they could do some damage to Bitcoin. So I, I sort of view this as an open question that I just happen to be pretty optimistic about. Well, and I think there's one other example here that is worth bringing to note. And that's, you know, even since the last podcast that we did here at the Libertarian Christian Podcast, where we talked about Bitcoin more extensively, We've seen the crackdown on miners in China. And what happened? Nothing. I mean, the price didn't really swing all that much. We're already hitting new all-time highs. I mean, yeah, today we saw a big drop and whatever. That's just, you know, it's the volatility of being in Bitcoin. whoop de doo But relatively speaking, China, of all places, where there were the most miners, where there was a, I mean, technically there's still a ton of interest in China, but they banned mining there. And we haven't seen much happen. I don't see like that. If that's if that is the reality of what happens when China does something, I don't think there's any chance of stopping it any other way. <laughs> so at least that's that again gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, that's a really great point. If any country had the power to really shut down Bitcoin, at least it, you know in their jurisdiction, it would be China because it's an authoritarian country with very powerful central government that can do things like that. Uh, but they made a huge geostrategic mistake in doing what they oh, did, yeah. banning, banning Bitcoin mining. Because what happened was the network is so resilient that all of those miners just moved their hardware to friendlier jurisdictions. They moved it all over the world and a lot of that mining hardware ended up in Texas. And that actually makes the network even more resilient because now the mining hardware is distributed more around the world. It's not concentrated in one country as it was before when it was concentrated in China and it's found friendly human um, liberty defending jurisdictions like Texas, which are much less likely to want to shut something like this down. And you listen to the politicians in Texas, like the governor, they are very pro Bitcoin. Their message is come to our state. We're a free state. We want your business and we have great resources for you to use for, for Bitcoin mining. And now you're starting to see states competing to get Bitcoin business. You know, Miami's mayor is talking about paying the people of Miami in Bitcoin and Texas's governor is asking Bitcoin miners to come to his state. So I think we're already seeing that polit- the early stages of that political capture in the US. 
but yeah, I just, my observation is China made a huge mistake. If Bitcoin becomes the next world reserve currency, as I believe it will, they had the potential to be one of the most powerful nations on earth, having a huge concentration of Bitcoin mining uh, in their country. But they basically kicked all of it out, which is yep. a, a huge, huge blunder. Well, I mean, we can, for one thing, we can say, hey, thanks, China. You did us a solid there. But is it like, well, once again, the authoritarian regime doesn't see the future. It doesn't know how to centrally plan things. Oh, what do you know? They kicked it out. <laughs> so they, they, you know, seen, not even really seen that they were writing their own writing on the wall. Yeah. And they don't even, they don't have the same value system. I think that's what it comes yeah. down to. They don't value human liberty. They don't care about that. They care about control, which is why they, they want their alternative to Bitcoin is what's called a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, where they have, uh, you know, ultimate surveillance power over their citizens. And every purchase you make, they, they're able to see and to control and to stop if they want. That's their vision of the future, economic vision, and but that's completely un-American, right? You know, we don't we don't have those values. We we Bitcoin is something that I believe is very American. Uh, it sort of fits with the tradition of uh, individual liberty much more than something like a central bank digital currency. It's interesting. We could say, almost say, really, I, we should say that this is to the Chinese people's credit. You know, I don't, I. I, this is a bit of a side note, I suppose, but I don't like a lot of times how we sometimes impute, and, and I'm not saying that you did this or anything, but I, I do hear this from colleagues. I hear this from various people. We like, impute the values of the government onto their people. And the fact that there were so many Chinese people who were going after Bitcoin, because they, I think it was because they kind of, it, it is a signal that people over there realize the value of this sort of thing. And that's important. And the fact then that, that, that these same people then escaped and there's still interest in Bitcoin over there, of course, is just indicative of how I think that we can't just assume, oh, well, communist China is just full of communist people. Like, in the, you know what I mean? It's like, I, w- I would hate for somebody over in the, the Middle East to, to look at me and say, well, you must be as bad as the, you know, your state leaders over there who continue to want to bomb us over here. Well, I wouldn't want to do that. They wouldn't want them to do that to me. I don't want to do that to the Chinese either. Yeah. And, then, and I know that's a little bit of a side point, but I think it's kind of an interesting side. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I, it, it's it's definitely difficult to unravel because you, it's hard to have a, a state like that without some fairly large fraction of the population approving of it. Um, oh, sure. If, of if, course, if, yeah. If, if, if it were the case that, you know, the vast majority of people disapproved, then it would be very unlikely to survive. And, you know, I don't think it's easy to quantify. And I think you make a good point. It's not, it's not a good idea to make a blanket statement like I did that all Chinese people have these oh, no, Well, so, you really didn't. So, so don't take yeah. it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I would say to push back a little bit on what you said to take the other side of the position, I've seen a lot of people who have come from China who are very apologetic for the state behavior in China. You know, when you explain something like Tiananmen Square and how it was this atrocity, a lot of people I've heard who've come from China will defend it and say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. And, you know, it was these people who were dissidents who were trying to sow chaos. So I've seen the other side as well. So and I, and I think oh, for sure. that, that, that there is a large base of people who actually support the, the policies and and that the value system, if you're going to do an average, 
of the population in China is quite different to the value system of the US. And it's not just China. I would say the, the value system of the US is quite different even to a country like Australia, where I was uh, you know, born and raised, which you know most people think of as a Western country with liberal values, yeah. classical liberal values. But then we look at Australia now with the, the COVID response, and it looks like this draconian dictatorship where they've like <laughs> locked people in their homes. So I, I do think the US is a very interesting place. It's one of the reasons I want to live here is that there is is a much more powerful sense of the importance of our freedom and and not trampling on on human rights. But you know, even here we see people who do want to do that. So there's always yeah. a spectrum in every country. Oh yeah, you're you're exactly right. I just I love the fact that there are lights everywhere that we can look to and be like, you know what? That's a good thing. And we saw that with Bitcoin, at least in China. And we see it, and we see it all over the world for sure. And uh, and I just I love to, you know, to herald those people and and those who do see the future in that way and, and realize that. You know, human liberty is important. There we go. Well, hey, yeah, like I, tank, yeah. tank man, like tank man. Sorry, I was just going yeah, you know, to that definitely. that iconic image of the the man standing with a, a white flag in front of a Chinese tank. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, I do want to make sure like we've we've been talking a lot about just the facets about what Bitcoin is, how it works, and aspects of economics and whatnot. But you know what? You wrote a book on this whole thing. And I love it. I think it's amazing. I think it's one of maybe the most accessible short work on Bitcoin that exists. It's certainly the most entertaining. And I'm going to stop talking about it and let let you kind of explain a little bit about its origin. But dude, tell us about the bullish case for Bitcoin. And, uh, and you know, how do I, how, how do you get involved with this little book? Yeah, so we started the show talking about you know, my background and how I eventually got into Bitcoin. And I'd been interested in Bitcoin for a number of years. So that by 2017, I had a lot of friends and family asking me about it. They knew I was interested and passionate about Bitcoin. And I just felt like at the time, there were so many misconceptions, especially in the media about what Bitcoin was. And was it a scam? Was it, you know, something that you gambled on or like, what was it? <laughs> and and I thought that I had spent enough time thinking about it and I had the tools of Austrian economics to analyze it, that I could provide a, a, an economic framework for people to understand Bitcoin and to understand why it has value and why that value has been increasing over time. So I wrote an article in 2017, which I ultimately published in early 2018 called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And I really, I only wrote it for friends and family. I, I was hoping maybe that a few people on Wall Street would read it and say, oh, yeah, now I understand Bitcoin, I might invest some of my savings in it. But it got read a lot more than I expected. It was read over a million times. It was translated into 20 different languages by volunteers. I didn't ask anyone to do it. They just took it and translated it. And a lot of people asked me to turn it into a book and at the time I thought, well, you know, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what I would add to it. I think I've said what I needed to say. But over the course of 2018, 2019, 2020, the, the Bitcoin market actually matured a lot. And in 2020, with the, the pandemic, central banks around the world, their response to the pandemic was so unprecedented. The amount of money that they created in 2020 had never been seen before. And I thought, okay, this is a good time to revisit the article and to update it and to expand it 
And I also realized that there were probably a couple of topics that I had missed in the article that I really needed to address if I turned it into a book. So I spent the latter part of 2020 and early 2021 writing the book, expanding on the article. And I I published it. I self-published it. I asked a bunch of other authors uh, whether I should go to a publisher. And they all, you know, uniformly told me, do not go to a publisher, self-publish it because you'll be able to maintain the rights. You'll be able to distribute it yourself. You'll be able to translate it when you want to translate it. Uh, And I'm actually just almost finished with the Spanish translation, which I'm about to release in about a week. So yeah, I self-published it. I launched it on Kickstarter. Uh, It got a bigger response than I expected. It sold about $150,000 in the book launch on Kickstarter. And then I, it's now launched in bookstores. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, And it's been doing pretty well. Uh, I think, you know, I would attribute it its success to people's desire to want to understand this new technology and this new form of money and looking for an accessible way to, to get to it and understanding. So yeah, that, that's how I, I wrote the book. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your support. You were one of my backers on Kickstarter. Heck yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> there was, there was, a, there was another thing about the book, which I thought was a little bit interesting. The book has some artwork in it, which I really like. And I found the artist on Twitter you know, I'm fairly active on Twitter and I came across this artist who was doing Bitcoin art and I messaged him and I said, you know, I love your art. I'd love to have your art in my book. And he said, sure. And he, he volunteered to do it for free. And the guy is anonymous. Like he doesn't have his name on Twitter. He's just a made up name. Uh, and there's no picture or anything like that. And, and so I don't know who he is. I don't know his name. I don't know where he lives. It goes by Bitcoin Ultras, right? Bitcoin Ultras, yeah. exactly right. And yeah, I decided good, yeah. I wanted to find a way to compensate him. So what I did was I sold the artwork from the book in my Kickstarter and I told him that I would give him all the proceeds of that and it ended up being about um, $8,000. And, you know, I don't know where he is. He didn't want to give up his name or location or anything like that. Uh, so I, I paid him with Bitcoin, and, yeah, and this is I can only this imagine. is an ex- yeah, this is an example of something that would never have been possible before. I can do a business transaction where he provides artwork to me, and I can pay him without knowing who he is or where he is, and so that I think has really big implications for global trade in the future, and that people around the world can trade with each other and not even really know about who the other person is, which will help maintain um, privacy and financial privacy and people's ability to shield how much savings they have, which is, you know, in some countries is really important. If you're living in a country that's a kleptocracy, you don't want your government to know how much savings you have. Exactly. And, and just, you know, to be, to reiterate, this artwork is awesome, guys. I love it. And I love, I love the fact that the, the book is kind of littered with it. There's all sorts of little images here and there, and they're, they're just fantastic. I love the fact that this that uh, I mean that this kind of heightens the whole. It raises and elevates the level of the book to something that's so, way more than just you know oh here's another treatise on on you know on basic economics or something like that. It is fun to read. It is super cool to hold this book in your hands and just it's wonderfully designed and beautiful. I love it. I am so happy you you t- you did turn it into the book. Ran the Kickstarter. I'm proud to have backed it. And I do hope that, you know, everybody, you know, takes a look at the book. We'll make sure I put a link in the show notes, of course. Uh, and, and just, I hope you get a, 
You guys get a copy. It's super cool. Perfect Christmas gift, guys. <laughs> and uh, I, I feel like I'm running an advertisement here, but it's, it is. It's super great. I really think that it, it will make a difference in the community and just as much as the original article did. And I'm really proud of you for doing it. I appreciate that, Noam. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, we've gone, we've gone pretty long tonight. Uh, but I, and I think I'm going to keep wrapping it up here. So VJ, I want to give you the last word and, and tell us what you think about, you know, what are your kind of short prospects for the future? And what do you think uh, we have in store for us and, you know, uh, for, for thinking towards 2022 and beyond with uh, respect to Bitcoin and technology? Where do you, where do you think we're going? I, I think we're is, at, it, is the moon our, is the is it the moon or are we at Pluto? <laughs> you know, I, th- I think I think we are actually at an inflection point when Bitcoin goes from kind of being this niche thing that's cool amongst technologists and maybe some, you know, uh, avant-garde investors to being something that's owned by a lot of people. Sort of in the S curve of adoption that a lot of technologies go through. There's an inflection point where it goes from being a niche thing to being widely adopted. And I I think we're right at that inflection point. I think over the next, say, three to five years, you can see a lot of people come into Bitcoin. I still think we're very early uh, in Bitcoin's adoption curve. Uh, the, The store of value market is at least two or three hundred trillion dollars in size, and Bitcoin's about a trillion dollar market capitalization right now. I think it's so much superior to the things it's competing against, uh, especially things like negative yielding government bonds. Like, why would you yeah. put your savings in something that's giving you a, a, ne- a negative yield, right? So, uh, because I think we're still early, I think it's still a great time to learn about Bitcoin and to figure it out. Everyone, when they come to Bitcoin, thinks they're late. Uh, whether you got in at sixty dollars or six hundred or six thousand or sixty thousand, even I think people always feel that they're late. But I think in terms of where Bitcoin is going, we're still very early. Uh, so I would just encourage your listeners to to go look into it. If you know, I'm sure the vast majority of your listeners also care about the same values that we do, and, and Bitcoin is a great tool for advancing those values. So I think folks should get some of their savings in Bitcoin and and. Go and understand it and why it's important and what its significance it is, what significance it has for our world. Excellent. Well, VJ, thank you once again for being on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. We're grateful for you uh, being here. Grateful for you uh, for writing this book and, and disseminating it to the world. Uh, we're I'm I'm personally super proud of you myself and proud to know you. And uh, so thanks once again for being here, man. Thank you, Norman. It's my pleasure. All right, and that concludes this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 